Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We're back to Matthew, and I'm glad to be here. It's like coming home to an old friend uh, this week. Been away from Matthew for a couple weeks in the passion time of our Lord and just remembering all that he went through and all that he is to us and for us and um, his character. We took a break and looked at Colossians chapter 1 and uh, reminded ourselves of who Jesus is in all of his glory, what his attributes are, what his character reflects. And then last week, of course, we took a break and went to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and looked at the benefits that we enjoy because of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. We have an imputed life and we have a victorious life as a result of his resurrection from the dead. We come back now to Matthew chapter 5, and if you're new with us, or if you haven't been with us but for these last couple of weeks, we're studying through the book of Matthew consecutively, just paragraph by paragraph, uh, trying to unpack all that we find here in this great gospel account. This is a record of the life of Christ. It's broken up for us by themes, and really it's even more technically broken up for us by sermons, by discourses that the Lord gave. And there are several, and we're going to look at those as we walk through the book of Matthew. We'll see those and try to highlight that we're now moving into a new section. There'll be a new discourse, then there'll be some signs and wonders to accompany that, miracles that Christ was doing consistently through his ministry, and then we'll come back to another teaching time. And so we've entered into this first one, chapters 1 through 4, kind of outlined for us an introduction to Jesus, uh, who he is. Uh, as the promised one of the Old Testament, the Messiah of God himself. And when we come to verse 1 of chapter 5, we find ourselves on the mountain with the Lord Jesus, and he has gone up with his disciples. No doubt the crowd is gathered around him, and he opens his mouth and he teaches. He sits down on the mountain, the people stand around him to hear him, and he opens his mouth with what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Um, This is probably the most familiar teaching section of our Lord's ministry. Even those who don't follow Christ know something about or know that there is a Sermon on the Mount. And yet it's important for us to grasp and to hold together um, the bigger picture that we find in the Sermon. The Sermon is presented to us almost as a manifesto for the Kingdom of Christ. And it comes to us directly from the mouth of the King Himself. And so all of its components fit together into a package, into a theme, into a, a primary emphasis that he's trying to make. And to, and to dice it up or to slice it up into sections, ignoring what comes before or ignoring what comes after, is really to damage what we find in Matthew's record of this sermon. The components are vital, and they flow logically and they flow spiritually from one to the next. And we started with verses 3 through 12, examining what is known as the Beatitudes. These reflect the character qualities, the heart condition of the kingdom citizen. Those who are truly within the kingdom of Christ, those who are in the body of Christ, those who are believers or the saved, or whatever our code term is for Christians, those who are in the kingdom which is the way Christ designates them, have this character. This is the reality of who they are. These are not commands you'll remember to us for a certain behavior. This is not concerned so much with what we do as 
who we are. So Christ here outlines for us, he exposes to us, it's as if he puts on display the heart of the kingdom citizen. Here is the heart, here is the inner man, here is the condition, the attitude, the disposition of the one who has been transformed by the grace of God. If you need a review, they are poor in spirit, they are mourning over sin, they are meek. That is, they have power under control. They hunger and thirst. They are desperate for righteousness. They are merciful. They are pure in heart. They are peacemakers. And they are persecuted people. This is the character quality that revolves around the kingdom citizen. Really, when we hit persecution in verses 10 through 12, we start to see the world's response to the believer. And in verses 13, then down through what? Verse 17... 16, 13 through 16, we see the world's response back, or our, our response rather, to the world. So in verses 11 and 12, we see the world's response to us. And in verses 13 through 16, we see our effect on the world. What is it that we accomplish in the world as kingdom citizens? Why are we here? That's the question that's answered in verses 13 through 16. So if you have a transformed character, you have a divine purpose for this life. You will affect the culture in which you live as both a salt and a light. We took a week to examine those and talk about what it is to be a salt and a light in this fallen world. That moves us forward then in the teaching of Christ to verses 17 through 20, where the remainder of the chapter really is propped up and established. In verses 17 through 20, Christ makes it clear that as the king of this kingdom, he does not bring with his ministry, an an abolition or abolishing of the law. He doesn't destroy the law of God. On the contrary, he fulfills it. He fills up what was understood to be the Old Testament law of God, what was handed down to, to Moses on the mountain. Christ fulfills in every way. And he presents to us as the fulfillment of the law, the law of the new covenant, the law of Christ which then takes us all the way through the end of chapter 5 and really takes us all the way through our entire New Testaments. We've been looking at these demands, these clarifications, these fulfilling uh, statements about the law of God. And we started with anger in verse 21. Then we looked at lust in verse 27. And the little uh, appendix on lust was the issue of divorce, which was where we stopped in verses 31 and 32. Or, to look at it more from a kingdom perspective, we looked at the heart of murder, beginning in verse 21, and the heart of adultery in verse 27. And then in verses 31 and 32, we saw one illustration of the heart of adultery being lived out in the issue of divorce. All of that brings us then to see the big picture of what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. There is a group of people that have been set apart. They have been sanctified. They've been made holy by the work of Christ. Their hearts have been transformed. The new covenant promise was, I'll take out the heart of stone and I'll put in a heart of flesh. You will be alive. You will have new life in the new covenant. That is exactly what takes place at the point of conversion. And this new heart is reflected in the character of verses 3 through 10. 
in the world's response in verses 11 to 12, in our effect on the culture around us in verses 13 through 16, and in our total allegiance to Christ as the lawgiver, as the king, as the sovereign of his kingdom in verses 17 through 20. And it should bring us to a place, as kingdom citizens, it should bring us to a place of submission now under the demands of the kingdom. What are the demands? What are the key aspects? What are the points of distinction that set apart the kingdom citizen from the world around him or the world around her? They do not live under some external code which they check off. But they examine their heart knowing that their lifestyle and the actions and the decisions and the attitudes of their life flow from the inside out. The Jewish nation and the religious leaders of the Jewish people had so tainted their understanding of the Old Testament law that they had no concept, they had completely lost the spirit of what was communicated to Moses in the Old Testament. And so Christ here puts his finger on the problem and he says, let me outline for you what the kingdom demands. And we find that in verse 20, he sums it all up for us in Matthew chapter 5. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, unless you're better than that, your righteousness far exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He also sums it up in conclusion in verse 48 of chapter 5, You therefore must be perfect, as your Father is perfect. Capital F, Father in heaven. And so Christ clearly outlines for us in these sections, in these paragraphs that are, I trust in your Bible, neatly outlined for you and give you nice headings over the paragraph. He is outlining for us what is the standard under His kingship. And the standard is nothing short of internal change producing an external, radical, countercultural lifestyle. And His standard is nothing short of perfection. That is the standard of the kingdom. And it leaves us asking the question, who, who then could be in the kingdom? Only those, only those who come to the perfect substitute and sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God Himself. The King Himself has died and been raised to make way for sinners to be a part of what we find in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This is the the big picture, the big scheme of what we find in these paragraphs. That brings us then, I trust, with some amount of context to verse 33, and we'll spend just a few moments this morning studying verses 33 through 37. Read along as I read them. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform To the Lord, what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil, or more accurately, probably from the evil one. And that's where we'll conclude this morning. 
This morning's topic is no less countercultural than all of the rest. Right? When we talk about the issue of adultery and we say, we see clearly from Christ's teaching that it is the heart that starts the adulterous work and there is guilt based on a heart of lust. When we move even back a little further and we see murder, obvious guilt before God for murderous activities, we see that those things actually begin in the heart of murder, which is anger. And we're exposed. And the countercultural nature of what Christ is teaching is exposed. Their religious leaders, their religious system, basically had set up parameters that if you lived within these parameters, you were okay. You could check off your list. You had never murdered anyone. You had not committed adultery. And Christ points back and digs his finger in and says, Oh, yes, you have. You are guilty if you have had a heart of anger or a heart of lust or if you have divorced inappropriately. You are guilty. And now we come to this paragraph and we find ourselves no less shocked at the countercultural message that we find here. The message of verses 33 through 37 is that the kingdom, the kingdom places a high priority on truth. The kingdom places a high priority on truth and nothing is more countercultural than an emphasis on speaking the truth in our culture. I mean, really, truth has fallen on some serious bad times in American culture. Several years ago now, our president redefined the word yes. He redefined the word as, has, did, did not. All to help him get around what is clearly deception. In recent times, we hear people talk about a misguided statement Maybe that they were under sniper fire when they landed. It was a misguided. That, I don't know how that happened. I, I must have had the wrong information. There weren't 50 caliber bullets flying past us when we got off the plane. Anything but I lied. I didn't speak the truth. Even in our own lives, not just pointing a finger out at somebody that we don't know, that is easy to say, ha ha, yeah, you, you people out there have no concept of truth. We are so guilty in our culture of embellishment, of exaggeration, of half-truth. Truth has become less and less important in our culture, which should only heighten our awareness that kingdom citizens are people of truth. And that's the word of the king for us this morning clever reinterpretation of words, maneuvering around what we have said or not said, leaving out key parts so that we are not caught with the deception that we are promoting. All of this is what Christ points to this morning. The Jewish religious hypocrisy contained much of the exact same problem that you see in your culture today. This is not new. Lying is not new. Deception is not new. It flows from the fall in heaven of one named Lucifer, who is the father of all deception. Now Christ presents this truth, and what an amazing shock this must have been to those 
who heard him teach. This would have smacked them in the face because their culture was so built on oaths. It was so built on swearing by different names. It was so built on bolstering the confidence of the hearer by using someone else's name or some other trait as the background. And that's where we bring ourselves to in verse 33. And really, we're just going to split this up like we have every other one of these paragraphs into three divisions. One, the religious norm. Two, the kingdom demand. And then three, the kingdom application. So first of all, in verse 33, we find the religious norm. Live by your oath. That's the religious norm. That was what was standard operating procedure for the people at this present time under the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus says again, or along the same lines, you have heard that it was said to those of old, this was what was communicated to your fathers through Moses. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. We say at face value, there's no error in that. In fact, that is a summary representation of what the Old Testament taught when it came to oaths and swearing, and swearing obviously not cursing, but swearing that there was something true to be said based on someone else's credibility. What we find here is a summary of several passages. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, is a clear forbidding from lying. Leviticus 19, 12, Numbers 30, verse 2, and then in Deuteronomy 6, 3, and 22, 21, 23, We find a summary of all of this statement that Jesus represents. You will not find this as a quote in your Old Testaments. And yet this encapsulates all that was taught in the Old Testament. First of all, there should be no swearing falsely. And secondly, what has been sworn must then be acted upon. You say, well, certainly that's not a bad thing. The issue here was not at face value what we read in verse 33 but rather the interpretation of the religious leaders and the narrow legalistic application of the law that had been handed down through Moses. What had happened in this time period was that the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, had defined and had clarified the law regarding swearing and truth-bearing. They had defined it down to such details as if you swore by Jerusalem then you were not bound to hold to what you had said. You were off the hook. But if you swore through Jerusalem, you were bound by your word. So you could say to someone, I swear by Jerusalem that I'll be at your house for lunch tomorrow at noon. And you could not show up, and you would not have sinned. But, in the Pharisees' interpretation, if you had said, I swear through Jerusalem that I'll be at your house tomorrow at noon, and you didn't show up, you were guilty of bearing false witness and of swearing falsely. The Pharisees had so broken down the law into external codes, they had their own private interpretation of what God had intended to simply confirm the truthfulness of what is said. In fact, in the Old Testament, we see God himself swearing on his own credibility, on his own character for the sake of bolstering the confidence of the one who heard him. So the religious community in the nation of Israel was well acquainted, and yet they had so distorted 
this clear teaching from God's Word, that it led to oaths being a tool to avoid speaking the truth. So people could use an oath or swearing by someone else's name to get around actually speaking the truth. Talk about turning Scripture on its head. The time of Christ, here the Pharisees, and the religious leaders of the people of Israel, had communicated to them ways in which they could distort the truth, and yet by swearing with accuracy, they could get around the guilt of lying. This is what Jesus is confronting in verse 33. You have heard it said, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That was the big banner code that rested over all that the Pharisees interpreted that to mean. And all that they interpreted it to mean missed the point of the Old Testament law. And the law of Christ here will articulate to us the standard that is outlined. We can see a little more of this picture a little clearly, and this is always challenging to me, and I've talked to some of you who are teaching Matthew as well in other settings. But in Matthew chapter 23, we find another illustration of this same reality in the Pharisees. You can flip over there, Matthew chapter 23. Just a few pages over, beginning in verse 16, Jesus here is arguing with the Pharisees. And he says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. So here is another illustration of the same concept. If you swore by the temple... You didn't have to keep your word. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, you were bound by your word. Now notice what Jesus says. You blind fools. This is the seeker-sensitive message of our Lord. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? He's saying, that's ridiculous. Your standard doesn't make any sense. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar... It's nothing. He can do it or not do it. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus confronted this legalistic, narrow interpretation because it undermined the very nature, the very character, and the demand of the kingdom of heaven. Once again, as in every other case, the spirit of the law had been traded in. It had been pawned off for some cheap counterfeit external code that could be kept. And folks, I know this, Dave and I were praying about this this morning, This really doesn't hit us, does it? I mean, not many of you are kind of bumming out because you've been swearing by the gold of the temple instead of by the temple. Okay, I mean, this this isn't something that's real much a part of our culture. It's challenging to us. And yet, the reality of what we see portrayed in this other culture is so common to our our own experience and our own existence. Legalism is simply narrowing and making easier the demands of what God has placed before us. What is it to to be a legalist? It's a Christian buzzword. You're so legalistic. What is legalism? Legalism is believing that somehow you can check off a list of do's and don'ts. 
and earn merit with God. And Christian legalism is the Christian who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, who then lives his life as if, by checking off a box of do's and don'ts, he can make himself closer to God. He can earn more merit that Christ has earned for him. The legalistic approach of the Jewish religious leaders was the former. It was the most serious, though both are extremely dangerous They believed that by keeping the law code, they could earn their justification. And so legalistic mindset had to be applied to the law. And so they narrowed the law. They they wiped off sections of the law. They chiseled it down until it was narrow enough for them to keep. And the law forbid any false witness, any lying, truth alone. Without truth, punishment. So the legalistic mind starts to abridge all that that means until it has it down to where truth is based on what you swear by and as long as you've sworn by the right thing, you don't have to actually be speaking the truth. And yet you won't be guilty before God. Now let me help you. That translates directly into our lives because we're all born legalists. We're born wanting to earn our own merit. We're born wanting to earn our way to God. And so it is natural for us to talk about things that we know are clearly sinful from the Word of God and yet to say things like, well, it's all about how you apply that. It's all about how you take that. I take that as this particular aspect of life, but it doesn't pertain to this other aspect of my life. All you're doing there is applying a legalistic mindset to Scripture and you're saying, those who who don't do what I think they should do in this particular area, are sinning. But I, on the other hand, think narrowly enough about the word that is revealed to me in Scripture that I am standing righteous before God. For these people, they were standing righteous in their truth speaking because they were careful to swear by the right things. This earned them their righteous standing before God in their own minds. And yet Christ here reveals, exposes, points out the damning reality of that error. Because the law did not deal with the precise use of which object would sworn upon. The law dealt with the heart. And the law was exposing the heart's condition of lying, of deception, and of truthlessness. And the kingdom, the kingdom demands of its citizens a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it demands of them a truthfulness that is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So we see the religious norm was some lesser application of what is revealed in Scripture. And then secondly, that moves us forward to the kingdom demand, which is greater than what they were experiencing at this time. Here's the kingdom demand in verse 34, 35, And 36. But I say to you, Jesus authoritatively lays down the kingdom command, the kingdom demand. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
What's the response of Jesus in the face of this oath issue and of swearing and using that as your end around speaking the truth clearly? His response is, stop this whole oath thing altogether. Stop it. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous before the king for you to be swearing about certain aspects of life or on certain aspects of life as if those don't pertain to God. The Pharisees judged the validity or the weight of your oath based on its relationship to Yahweh. So in other words, they believed that swearing by the altar, we find in Matthew chapter 23, was not as close to Yahweh as swearing on the sacrifice that was on the altar. That was a step closer. Therefore, you're bound. Jesus here reveals the ridiculousness of that concept by pointing out that everything they could swear upon was directly related to Yahweh God. There was nothing that they could swear on that was outside of the very character and the sovereignty of Yahweh God. So Jesus redirects the hearts of the hearers, and he redirects our hearts to the standard for the kingdom. And the standard is, no oaths, just truth. Just truth. The kingdom is all about truth. Truth must reign. Look at the argumentation he uses in verse 34 and 35, 36. He says, don't swear by heaven. That's where God sits. That is his throne. Don't swear by earth. That's what God puts his feet up on. He is sovereign over the earth. It's his. It's his domain. Don't swear by Jerusalem. And interestingly, that is actually through Jerusalem. It's the word he uses intentionally there. And obviously Jesus was pointing his finger right at one of their own traditions. Don't swear through Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. And who is the city or who is the great king who indwells Jerusalem and who will indwell the new Jerusalem for an eternity? It's Jesus himself. He says, you can't swear by Jerusalem. That is the city of the great king. And then he ends verse 36 with even the personal oath. And maybe we understand this a little bit better. Maybe we do. We understand family oaths. I swear on my grandma's grave. This is like third grade stuff. Okay? Triple dog dare you and swear on your mother's grave. Okay? I understand. Maybe you're not dealing, dealing with this. Maybe I was in third grade way before you, or much sooner than, or closer to now than you were. And I understand that. It's not computing as much. But Jesus says, don't even swear by your own head. And we don't even understand what that means. I mean, what, what is he saying? And why does he say then that you can't make one hair white or black? As if someone said, I'm telling you the truth, so much so that I swear if I'm not, my hair is going to turn white. We just do not get this. This does not make any sense. If someone said that to you, you'd be like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I believe you. I have no idea what you're talking about. Why are you saying these things? This makes no sense. And yet in their, in their culture, in their understanding, it was to say, I swear on my own head. I swear on my own life. I swear on my own countenance. I swear on my own physical appearance that I'm speaking the truth. Therefore, you should believe me. Jesus says, that's ridiculous. You can't change anything about yourself. That will always end up being true. I swear that I'm telling you the truth, and if not, my hair turns white. And then you speak, and your hair doesn't turn white. 
because you have no ability in and of yourself to change anything about yourself. The point from verses 34 to 36 is that oaths should be done away with because every single oath that was being sworn upon was directly connected to God himself. To swear by your physical life or your physical appearance is to swear by God's sovereign control. To swear by or to use for the sake of bolstering confidence in your words, heaven, earth, may the world come to an end, by Jerusalem, by the city of the king, all of these things were to be swearing on the character of God. And to not keep your word then was to place guilt upon you at every single time there was this swearing or an oath given. So we ought not need to say things like, I swear, or no lie, or honest truth. Maybe you've been in a setting where somebody tells you, I'm telling you the honest truth. And you say, well, what have you been doing up to this point? I mean, why, why now do you feel compelled to tell me that this is truth? As opposed to what you have just said? Or I swear to you, uh, no lie. Well, how many lies have been a part of what you've just finished saying? No lie. I actually saw what I saw. There's no need for that in the kingdom. All such phrases lead us down a path that gives us temptation to use that as a means around speaking the clear truth. And so Jesus says, set aside swearing and oaths altogether. Because the law of Christ is not about your little minute details of how you're applying this and trying to make this an intricate law so that you can keep it The kingdom of Christ and the law demands of Christ are all about your heart. They're about truth from your tongue. This is the message we find in verses 34 through 36. Now there's one point of application that should be mentioned. There are some well-intentioned to apply this who have taken this particular passage and highlighted as the application of this passage a a forbidding of swearing on anything, including swearing to give testimony in court or swearing to enter into an office, a public office, taking your oath. This would challenge that as being a very narrow understanding of what Jesus is trying to emphasize and almost, unwittingly, no doubt, almost doing the very thing that he is attacking. By narrowing the application of this text to saying that this means we don't swear on the Bible before we take the seat as a witness in a courtroom, is to narrow this down to where we can say, I'm obeying the law of Christ because I've never sworn before I took uh, my seat as a witness in a courtroom or before I was ushered into an office. Those are not the problem. We know that from the Old Testament. Oaths are not the problem. It is the heart and the sinful use of these oaths that Jesus is attacking. And so we must keep ourselves focused on the point of the text or we'll find ourselves narrowly applying it again, which makes it easy for us to live this out. This misses the point and unwittingly leads us back to a narrow, isolated application rather than the heart reality that is exposed in the kingdom citizens in verses 33 to 36. Not only this, but further on in our New Testaments, we'll see swearing done again by the Apostle Paul, by others, though never with this same emphasis that was applied 
by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. That's the kingdom demand. No oaths. The cultural norm was to get around the truth by using an oath or by swearing on some other being or some other place. The kingdom demand is truth alone. And the kingdom application is found in verse 37. And it's a no-brainer for us, but in verse 37 he says, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. So what is to be the pattern for the speech of the kingdom? What is the kingdom application? What is to be the countermeasure to the problem? How is it that we would go about correcting embellishment, exaggeration, other movements away from truth? Well, Christ is quite clear. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Yes means yes, no means no. That's the testimony of the kingdom. The kingdom is a place of truth. There's no need to invoke God's name on a statement that you make. He's present. He's there. You're claiming to be a kingdom citizen. He's present in all your speech. The believer ought to be a person whose word is as good as action and a promise is unalterable. The Proverbs speak of swearing to our own hurt. That is making a promise making a declaration to someone which then we find out later is actually going to damage us and yet we keep it because it reflects the faithful character of our king. Anything added on to our words for the sake of added emphasis only comes from the evil one. That is what is revealed in verse 37. Let me challenge you folks and... I challenge us together collectively that we examine our speech. I mean, there's really, this is just a long way walking through verses 33, 34, 35, and 36 to get to 37. Because 37 is the point. Let's examine ourselves. Let's examine how committed we are to speaking the truth in private with one another, with our spouses, with our coworkers with those that we desperately want to impress. Let's be careful about padding the stats, about living outside of reality. Let's be careful about silly things that our culture says, hey, no problem. Those are not, that's not lying. To embellish a story, those of us who were athletes at some point in the past, we get to be better and better athletes every day that goes by. Right? I'm telling you, my wife can attest to this. Every dunk is higher and harder than it really was. We've got to guard ourselves, guard ourselves from manipulating, from moving away from the truth. Our yes must be yes, and our no must be no. Our mouths are the, the, the show window to our hearts. Therefore, the kingdom citizen is to be desperately concerned about the truth. People should know that a Christian is one who speaks the truth in every way, not just in promises, but also in recounting stories or even declaring to them the word of God. This is the kingdom application. The religious norm was live up to your oath. The kingdom demand was do away with those altogether. 
And the application of that demand was speak the truth. Speak the truth. This is the manifesto. This is the demand. This is the standard of the kingdom. And those of us who profess to be a part of this kingdom must evaluate our lives in light of this standard. Not the standard of the world around you, not the standard of the culture around you, but by the standard of the king himself, as perfectly revealed in his word. Why? Why is this so crucial for us as God's people, as those who have been set apart in the kingdom? Why is this such a crucial issue for us? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us a little bit about why these things are so critical. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3 says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that so that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why? Verse 6 ends up telling us to the praise of of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. say, why is this so critical? Because as kingdom citizens, if in fact we have truly humbled ourselves, we have been brought to the end of ourselves in poverty of spirit, our hearts have been transformed, our purpose has changed. Our purpose now is to reflect the very character of our God, holy and blameless reflect anything but the truth is to set ourselves against the very character of God. In fact, this is so critical to our thinking that we find in John 8:44, Jesus speaking again to these religious leaders. Here's how he describes them. Why do you not understand what I say? Verse 43 says, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has, had, and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. To speak anything but the truth, no matter how small. There are no white lies, whatever white is supposed to mean innocent there are no innocent lies the kingdom takes truth seriously why because to reflect anything but the truth is to reflect not the character of our king but reflect the character of satan himself this is why the priority is placed upon who we are first before we address what we do because no one can bear the truth No one can be known as truthful. No one can bear the truth about Christ who has not been transformed from the inside first. They will be of their father, the devil, the father of lies. In fact, that's what Jesus goes on to say in verse 45, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And then he ends with this potent verse, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So let me challenge you in conclusion as we examine these kingdom demands. And we look and we see ourselves falling far short 
of these kingdom demands. We see ourselves falling short of truthfulness. I trust we're honest enough to acknowledge that we do not bear the truth in every way at every moment of our lives. And yet those of us who are in the kingdom fall back, not on some earned merit, not on some checklist, but on the righteousness that has been imputed to us by Christ himself. And our desire and our pursuit is for his character to be revealed through our speech. The demand is for perfection. And perfection can only be found for the sinner in Jesus Christ himself. The direction of the life then changes. There is a turn. And we follow after Christ, pursuing his character reflected in every facet of our lives. Whether it be anger, whether it be lust, or whether it be truth. Let us be a people. Let us be kingdom citizens. That more and more and more and more reflect the character of our King, the truth Himself. He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And He is our hope of perfect righteousness as kingdom citizens. This is the word of the Lord, and this is the demand of the kingdom. And it will either be our delight to pursue it, acknowledging our weakness and falling on the cross, or it will be our damnation because we will reject it or we will attempt to, uh, to live it out in our own ability, which will end in eternal punishment. I trust your response to the Word of God will be the appropriate response this morning. None of us will go out of here non-responsive. None of you. None of us who have come in contact with God's Word have the freedom to leave neutral. We will respond rightly, or we will respond wrongly. May we respond in a way that glorifies God, submitting ourselves, humbling ourselves under His Word, and acknowledging Christ as our perfect substitute.